The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Let's begin by reading a passage from the Word of God from Isaiah chapter 6. If you would open to Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We are beginning a, a study tonight that we are going to do throughout this fall, and, and I'm going to have other, other teachers helping teach it, so it won't just be me, but I wanted to kick it off and, and probably do, do next week's or the, the one in the following week as well. But the study is, what is Reformation theology? What is Reformation theology? I had somebody ask me this morning, why do a study on Reformation theology? And, and tonight, just so you can take notes and kind of know where we're going, I'm going to give you four sets of lists, okay? So this is the first list. Why study Reformation theology? I'm going to give you four quick reasons on this. But when I think about the Reformation and what happened in the Reformation chills go down my spine because the Reformation in the history of the church was one of the mightiest, most powerful movements of God that the world has ever seen. And one of the things that marked the, the Reformation, and this is what my prayer, this is reason number one, that, that my hope is to recover is that we would be God-centered Christians. The Reformation was a rediscovery of who God is. That as we just read in Isaiah 6, that God is holy. That God is majestic. That God is a God that is both just and merciful. That God's word is is to be treasured. That was the Reformation. That's reason number one. Second reason is that in the Reformation, as you see, as you see these guys like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Bollinger and others, as you see them define salvation over against Roman Catholic theology, you see the work of Christ and the work of grace in a splendid way, because you're seeing these guys discover for the first time that you can be justified before God in a moment on the basis of the work of Christ, when their whole lives 
they thought that they needed to work this out and try to earn God's favor through this sacramental system. This understanding that what Christ accomplished on the cross is final. And that that is given to you as a gift through faith alone, apart from works. That is so sweet. It, 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 it's wonderful. And I think there's a sense where we've lost that understanding of grace. So that's reason number two. Third reason is my hope and prayer is that God would bring reformation and revival again to this country. It's not, this is not just a historical study in the sense of let's, we're interested in the past. It's not that. I'm interested in recovering the doctrines of the past because it's the doctrines of the past that God uses in the present to bring about revival. When you begin to discover who God is, that God is holy, the immediate result of that is that you understand that you are not holy. Did you see that in, in, that, in Isaiah 6? When you see a holy God, the response isn't, oh man, I'm great. The response is, woe is me. And that was the, the response of Luther and these guys. You know, Luther didn't believe what his, uh, von Stolpitz was his um, confessor. He would go and confess his sins, and, and he would say, okay, you know, Luther would come into the confessional, and he would say, okay, go do a hundred uh, Hail Marys and... and um, our fathers and, you know, go, go help some, some people down the, down the road, and then you're going to be absolved of your sins. Luther didn't buy it because he was like, oh my, that's not how a holy God functions. And, and so that's my heart, is that we rediscover the holiness of God, where we stand in light of God, and then, and only then, can you understand grace? And that's what we have lost, is an understanding of grace. And, and I know you're saying, shut up. People understand grace. You don't understand grace until you understand God. When you understand the holiness of God and your unworthiness of salvation, then you can begin to understand grace. That is pressing into grace. But it all starts with that vision of knowing who God is. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. Uh, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think he wrote this, 1958. He said, quote, Today our essential trouble is that we are content with a very superficial and preliminary knowledge of God, his being, and his cause. And content with that, we spend our lives in busy activism instead of pausing to realize the possibilities. Instead of realizing our own failure and realizing that we are not attracting anybody to Christ and that they probably see nothing in us that makes them desire to come to him, the inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God, a thirst, a living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself in his power, rising and scattering his enemies. So that's the third reason is, is my hope is that God would bring reformation and revival. And the fourth reason is, is you need to know your spiritual legacy, that we are in this legacy of the reformation. It, you know, you're not a Roman Catholic, I hope not. And we are Protestant Christians. That's, that's who you are. And you stand on the shoulders, the spiritual shoulders of these reformers who went before you. I had a church history professor one time that says, there's somebody between you and Jesus besides your grandma, and you need to know who they are. So that's the fourth reason. All right. So that's the reasons why to do this. Second list that I'm going to give you. Let me give you just the high points of Reformation theology. All right, second list. What are, the, what are we going to study? What are the high points 
of Reformation theology. When we talk about Reformation, I'm talking about the movement in the 16th century, the 1500s, to reform the Catholic Church that has its seat in Rome. That's what I mean when, I talk, when I'm talking about the Reformation. And there were certain marks of this theology, and we're going to look, we're going to study it, and we're going to get into the Bible, because I'm not just, I'm not really, I'm interested in the history, but I'm interested in the history because it leads to the truth. So we're going to get into the Bible, but let me give you just, just some of the, the mountain peaks that came out of the Reformation. As I just said, and I'm going to reiterate first, it is God-centered, it is the realization that you can know God. And I know we live in a world where J.I. Packer wrote the book Knowing God. And we live in that world where it sounds passe for somebody to tell you that you can know God. But in the 1500s, people didn't think that they could know God. God was behind a veil of relics. And when you would go to church, the entire service would be in Latin, which you probably wouldn't know, and nor would the priest know. And you would just be told that you need to, to be a good person and, and maybe um, go pay homage to a relic or pray to a saint. Point being, God was so far away from you that you were going through all these intermediaries. You were going through priests. You were going through relics. You were praying to saints, not to Christ. God was somebody that was unknown to you. But yet that is the essence of Christianity, is to know God. And that's what was so surprising to people in the Reformation, is that oh my goodness, I can know Christ experientially in my heart. I can see him in his word, and I can know God, and I don't have to go through a priest to do it. That's what was so mind-blowing about the Reformation for so many people. And people would just rejoice in the streets when they heard that they could have a relationship with God. And that's something I think that so often we take for granted now. But I also think it's, it's a similar problem today in the modern church, where you have so many churches where the, the service is filled with smoke machines, and dark lights, and emotive music, and the Word of God has been hidden. And yeah, there might be a verse on the screen and, and the message or something, which is a paraphrase, but the Word of God, and therefore God himself, has been hidden. And, and you're hearing about God through, through a talking head up on the, the platform, and so there is a dire need for people to once again to know the risen Christ. And the only way to do that is through the Word of God. Because we don't believe in mystic visions and, and that sort of thing. The only way to know Christ is through the Word. And so unless a church reads from the Word, doesn't that sound novel, and teach the Word, you will not know God. It's that simple. This is what Paul says. This is God's desire for you. This is Ephesians 3.18. This is my prayer. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is, this is what marks the Christian. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So Christianity, as Jesus said, John 17, 3, is knowing him. 
It is God-centered. It is, it is then you see, okay, I, I know God. Now I understand soli deo gloria, that it's all for his glory. Now I understand quorum deo, that I live before his face in everything I do, whether it's in the church or whether it's in my business, all of it is for his honor. I am coming to that God-centered life. Second thing, and, and, and we've hit on this a little bit, but it is a return to being a Bible-centered Christian. A Bible-centered Christian. The Reformation at its heart was a recovery of the Word of God. It was a recovery of the centrality of the Bible in the Christian life. Before, in the 1500s, the only Bible that you would have is a copy of the Latin Vulgate, which Jerome translated a thousand years before. And oftentimes that Vulgate would be there on the, the, the lectern in the church, but nobody knew how to read it. Uh, the, the church said, if you want to interpret it, you need professors from the University of Paris, or you need the Pope, or you need the Cardinals to tell you what it says. Just trust us. The councils and the professors will tell you what is in the Bible. So people had no idea what the Bible actually, they, they, they didn't know its contents. They just, the church just said, look, just trust us on what it says. You need to just know that we know, and really your faith then wasn't really in the Word, it was in the church. If you were to ask a, a medieval person, you know, what's your faith in? They, say, they would say, well, I don't really know what I believe, but I know that my priest does, I hope. That's what they would tell you. During this time in the 1500s, there was a movement called the Renaissance. And the, the people in the Renaissance, they were, the, the leaders were called humanists. And they were scholars who wanted to recover ideas and virtues from the past. And they said the way to do that is we need to go back to the original sources that prompted those ideas. So their watch phrase was this, these two Latin words, ad fontis, which means to the fountain or to the source. And they started going back to, for example, Virgil and Homer and Plato and, and these ancient texts. And they said, we want to read these because we want, it, we want to be transported back to Athens. We want to understand what the philosophers thought. And we want to, to get back to, to that and not just go through all this scholastic medieval jargon that's been there for the past thousand years. We want to go all the way back. Well, this guy named Erasmus who was a humanist, very brilliant person, published a Greek New Testament in 1516. And all of these scholars that, that were Christians, Christians, you know, they're, they're, they have this desire to go back to the early church. And when this Greek New Testament was published, it was volcanic. It was the book on the market. And that's what Luther got a hold of. That's what Zwingli got a hold of. And they started pouring through the text of the New Testament and, and, and just devouring it. And, and, and with this desire to, let's go back, if we are going to recover biblical Christianity, let's go back to the very beginning. So there was this lifting up of, of Scripture. On January 1st, 1518, in the town of Zurich, Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli says, I'm going to do something different. Before, the, uh, the Catholic Church would tell you what to preach in your homily. You know, it, the Scripture would be listed, and, and everything was by the book. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start preaching verse by verse through the entire New Testament. And he started in Matthew 1, 1, on January 1st, 1518. The people filled the church. One historian I read said people were more excited and stunned to go hear 
the preaching of the word of God directly than they were at the news that Christopher Columbus had discovered the new world. This was earth-breaking to them, earth-shattering, that someone would preach from the Bible and that they could hear it in their own language and know it and understand it. So there was this lifting up of the word of God that said this truly is God's word and therefore it's our authority. So when Luther would stand at the Diet of Worms in 1521, he said to the charges, quote, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So it was this return to the Bible. Third, it was an understanding that man is spiritually depraved. It's an understanding that man is spiritually depraved. This doesn't mean that man is, every man is a criminal. It doesn't mean that every man is as bad as they possibly could be. It doesn't mean that every person is a Hitler or a Stalin or a Pol Pot. But what it means is, is that you cannot contribute anything to your salvation other than the sin which makes it necessary. You don't, you don't save yourself. And what Rome had been teaching, I'm gonna explain it more in depth in a minute, is that you cooperate with God in order to, to basically achieve your salvation. God does his part and you lock arms with God and you do your part. And in so doing, you cooperate with God and put yourself in this stream of salvation. And what Luther and all the reformers said is no, salvation is by grace alone. Grace alone. Because Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. It's all by divine grace. And that's point number four, is the necessity of divine grace. That salvation is entirely a work of grace. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is something that God does. It is monergistic, which means it's one-handed. It is God reaching down with his mighty arm to save. It is Christ in his finished work what Christ accomplished. It is God's foreordination. It is God's irresistible grace. Um, I was reading about the work of Christ and how Luther came to understand the work of Christ. This is one historian. He said, quote, Luther's first lectures in 1513 to 1515 were on the Psalms. He worked diligently and he lectured on them, faithfully taking up the Psalms in numerical sequence. The study of the 22nd Psalm brought illumination. This Psalm begins with the words which Christ quoted upon the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther was suddenly arrested by that word forsaken as he had been by the lightning earlier in his experience. And that's another story. I'll get to that later. Christ forsaken? What could this mean? Forsaken, abandoned, alienated, and estranged from God? That was precisely the way Luther felt. Christ had experienced all this too? But why? Luther knew why he felt forsaken. God is pure and man is impure. God is strong, man is weak. But Christ was not impure, Christ was not weak. Why then was he forsaken? The answer must be that he who was without sin for our sakes became sin 
and so identified himself with sinful humanity as to take unto himself the iniquity of us all, and to sense such a solidarity with mankind as to share in the estrangement from God. What a picture of Christ is this. The judge upon the rainbow has become the derelict upon the cross. He is still the judge and must be so long as truth judges error and right judges wrong. But in the very act of judging the sinner, he has made himself one with the sinner, assuming his punishment and sharing in his very guilt. End quote. So Luther understood and the reformers understood for the first time what Christ had accomplished. That Christ had a finished atonement on the cross. That Christ died in their place for their sins. And that through faith, they could find forgiveness immediately at the throne of grace. That they could be, in a word, justified. And they looked at text like Romans 3.20. And, and this is where they articulated their doctrine of faith alone. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Justified is a declaration from God. He says, by doing good works, Paul says, no one will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's faith apart from works that justifies the sinner. And how that happens is through that work of Christ, that the work of Christ is given to you completely as a gift. It's not earned. It's by grace. And that's sola gratia, that salvation is by grace alone. Paul says, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is a gift through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is of grace, all of grace. The moment that you insert the first personal pronoun in the, in the salvation conversation, you're on the wrong foot. Because now you're trying to say, this is what I did. You did nothing. Christ did everything. God does everything. That's, that's the Reformation. And that's Pauline Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. Now let me get to this third list. So that was number two. What are the doctrines that we're going to be looking at primarily? Number three, why was there a need for a Reformation? Why a Reformation? Well, let me just paint a, a, a general picture of what life was like in the medieval ages. The, the period was known as Christendom in the sense that everybody lived and died underneath the Roman Catholic Church. You were, quote, born a Christian and you died a Christian because you lived in that geographical area. Religion was all around you. You couldn't escape it. It was everywhere you went. Uh, one historian, Carlos Iyer, said this, quote, Above all, religion was simply there. It was inescapable. Everyone had to be baptized into the same church and to observe its laws, end quote. It was compared to the seamless robe of Christ. It, it, it was just there, and it could not be broken. It was... You, your entire existence that you were surrounded with. There were sacred spaces. There were chapels. There were relics. There were priests, and there were convents, and there were uh, monasteries. There were sacred things. It was the, the air that you breathed. And this really was the fundamental framework of society, is that everybody was in the church, and, and, and listen to this, everyone was a Christian, and yet no one was a Christian. 
because nobody knew what it meant to be a Christian. Everybody was a Christian, but nobody was a Christian. I say that. I, I mean, that's an, there, there were certainly, you would hope, some born-again believers. But no one knew this. But they lived in Christendom. Let me tell you what was wrong with the church at the time. Let me give you six, six things that were wrong with the church at the time. The church facilitated salvation mechanically. So the way that they understood salvation is that salvation came through the institutional church. The church basically facilitated salvation to everyone through a system called the sacraments. There were seven sacraments, baptism, which is, you know, when the, the baby would be born, they would not baptize, it's not Christian baptism, but they would sprinkle the baby, and supposedly then the baby would be born again. Second, when the child would reach an age, they would go through what's called confirmation. Third, when you sinned, you would go through the sacrament of penance, where you would confess your sins to a priest. The priest would grant absolution as long as you practiced penance. Fourth was, and this is probably most important, was the partaking of the mass. The mass, they understood, was a re-sacrifice of Christ. So Christ, when the priests would pray over the elements, Christ was re-sacrificed, and those elements turned into the literal body and blood of Christ. And you would take the elements, and you would be drinking, they said, Christ's blood. By the way, they wouldn't give you the bread because if you dropped a crumb, you would be dropping the body of Christ on the ground. So we can't give you the lay people. We can't give you the bread, just the cup. I'm serious. This is what they did. You can only take the cup. The bread's, bread's too dangerous. But you would take the mass, and then you would be strengthened. You would be given grace. Fifth was the, the sacrament of marriage. Sixth, holy orders. Seventh, extreme unction, when somebody would come and a priest would pray over you before you died. Their understanding of how the sacraments worked is like a lever, that, you, that grace operates as a machine would operate. You pull the lever, you get grace. It's like one of those little Pez candies. You ever play with those? You know, you pop up the head, pop, candy comes out. That's the, that's the Roman Catholic system. You pull the lever, you get grace. You take the mass, you get grace. You go to the priest, you confess, you have penance, you have grace. It's a, it's a lever, and the church controls the lever. So what happens if you tick off the priest or the pope, and they say you're outside the church? Well, now you're outside of grace, because the church is the, is the institution which distributes the grace. It's not God who distributes the grace. It's the church that distributes the grace. You see the problem in that? Second issue is there was a radical division between the clergy and the laity. If you wanted to be a spiritual person, you basically had to become a priest. You basically had to go join a convent or a monastery. And they said, if you take these vows of celibacy, if you renounce any sort of wealth or home, if you endeavor to live your life like this, maybe in a few years you could know God. But it's only these super Christians that can have a sacred life. You know, you all are just kind of over there playing in the mud. You know, <laughs> that's really what it is. Uh, your work is temporal, secular, they said. The priest's work is sacred. Your work is secular. It's not for God. Their work is sacred. So if you want to be any type of important Christian whatsoever, if you want to know God, then you have to go 
be a super Christian and join a monastery. You have to go join a convent, uh, that sort of thing. And then everything was mediated through those priests in terms of the other people's relationship to God. So that's the second reason. Third, the priesthood became very corrupt. The priesthood became very corrupt. The priests were all supposed to take vows of celibacy, but yet many, if not the majority of priests at the time, had what they called concubines. You know, they said if you were to go down to uh, Rome in the Vatican, you would see the kids of the priests just playing in the streets. So sexual licentiousness was everywhere. I, I read in one place where somebody said that the convents in Rome doubled as brothels. So the church imposed this whole idea of celibacy, which is not biblical, and imposed it on people, and people just disobeyed it. And here's the thing, here's the crazy part. It was sanctioned. The church said you can have a... a a fling on the side, and you can have kids, but it's fine as long as you pay the bishop a tax. And if you pay the bishop the tax on the kids that you have, it's all good. And so the Roman church just started getting wealthy. So they incentivized it, this whole thing. And uh, so, so the priest, I mean, it, it was just a complete debacle the lifestyles that the priests were living. One gentleman who looked after uh, one of the uh, St. Paul's Basilica, I think in London, uh, his name is John Colette. He lived 1466 to 1519. Let me give you a quote that he made on the priest. He says, they give themselves to feasting and banqueting, spend themselves in vain babbling, take part in sports and plays, devote themselves to hunting and hawking, are drowned in the delights of the world. They patronize those who cater for their pleasure. They're mixed up and confused with the laity. Um, they lead under a priestly exterior, the mere life of a layman, end quote. So, the priesthood was completely corrupted. Fourth, not only was it corrupted, the priests were uneducated. So the mass was expected to be given completely in Latin, yet hardly any of the priests knew Latin. They simply memorized the Latin words that they were supposed to say. Therefore, none of them could really preach or give a sermon. So you would just show up, and you would hear everything in Latin, and you would not have a clue about what was being said. It was all bells and whistles, candles, incense, the, the priest dressed in his priestly garments. It looked nice. It's, it's showy, and, you know, priests coming out, and, you know, it looks all wonderful. But there's no substance of the Word of God. None. The writer, prophet Amos, said this in Amos 8, 11. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And that was this period in history that there was not the word of God to be found. If you wanted to know the word, if you wanted to hear the word, it most likely for you would not happen in your life. I mean, can you imagine? I can't imagine what it would be to live without the word of God. I can't imagine it. I mean, I would rather die than, than have my, not have my Bible. So there was a famine in the land of the word of God. It makes you appreciate the Bible, doesn't it? And what you have. I mean, how many English Bibles do you have in your house? I mean, what, what an unbelievable blessing. Fifth, there was a faulty understanding of the work of Christ. They did not understand that when Jesus said to tell us die on the cross, 
that his work was finished. And that's, that's really important because if you don't understand the finished work of Christ, then you're going to keep trying to add to it yourself. And that's what they did. That, that you have to keep trying. Yes, Christ did, did his part, and he's doing his part in the Mass. But you need to keep doing your part. You need to keep pulling yourself up. And that's why with, with somebody who doesn't understand the finished work of Christ, ask them about assurance. Ask them, do you know that if you die, you will go to heaven? They will always tell you, I, I can't be sure, because they don't understand the finished work of Christ. You can only have assurance of salvation, 100%. When I say assurance, that you know where you will go when you die. You can only have that if you understand the finished work of Christ. That when he died on the cross, he accomplished salvation. Period. It's done. It's finished. And therefore, God can give you grace now, unearned. But it all hinges on understanding what Christ accomplished. And six, and this is part of this, is the cell of what's called indulgences. The practice of selling indulgences began in the Crusades. So in the Crusades, you remember, you had Jerusalem, and they said, okay, that's the, quote, holy city. We need to take it back from the Mohammedans, from the, the Muslims. And so the, the popes and the kings started sending people back across Turkey, down into Jerusalem to retake the Israel, the Holy Land, all of it. Well, the problem was you have all these soldiers marching across country and sea. Can they go to church? No, they can't, right? They're, they're on this crusade. So how are they going to take part in the sacraments? Remember we said salvation is through the church? We're sending these people away from the church. How are they going to take part in the sacraments while they're away for these few years? Well, we will write them what's called an indulgence, an indulgence is merit that is given to you that's, that basically makes up for your failure to take part in the, the sacramental system. So that's how we're going to get around this. We'll send these soldiers that are taking part in the Crusades with a certificate that, you know, it, it says right here, I'm forgiven, and I can just go off on my crusade, and I don't need to go to church for the next three or four years and confess to the priest and all that stuff. Well, they expanded the indulgence system to the people also who were funding the crusades. You know, these people are over here giving a lot of money to send these soldiers over in the crusades. So because they're giving a lot of money to support this thing, why don't we give them these certificates too? that any penalties that a priest could impose on them, they get out of it too. So let's sell the indulgence to those that are funding the Crusades. Now, you're thinking, how, where does this theology come from? Well, it's not in the Bible, obviously. But this idea was contrived that Christ and the other saints in the apostolic era and others that came after them lived such meritorious lives that they had good works to spare, that they not only earned their salvation, but they had excess good works. And those excess good works were deposited in this fictional thing called the treasury of merit. Does it exist? No, it does not. There's no treasury of merit. But they said these good works are deposited there, and the Pope has access to this treasury where he can tell somebody that their penalties for their sins are null and void. Now, they worked this out eventually. Now, who can forgive sins? You remember Jesus said, only God can forgive sins? Eventually, they stretch this to say not only can the Pope grant the forgiveness of the penalty for sin, but the forgiveness of sin itself. 
And by the way, through the cells of indulgences and through taxing the priest for their illegitimate children, the Pope became three times richer than any king on earth. It was a Ponzi scheme to get money. It was. The whole thing was built on money. And the Pope became inordinately rich. And they started to use this money money to build St. Peter's Basilica uh, there in Rome. So what prompted the Reformation was Pope Leo commissioned or, or basically issued a papal bull for this indulgence, this super indulgence that would grant you either the forgiveness of sins or one of your family members who was in purgatory for them to be granted release from purgatory if you bought this special indulgence that they begin to sell. And there was this very effective salesman um, of, of indulgences who, his, his name was Johann Tetzel, and, and he had a saying that said, a coin in the coffer rings and a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, that's just wonderful marketing, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's just catchy. You know, hear that coin, you get one of your family members up and out. And Luther, at this point, had been reading Erasmus's New Testament. He'd been studying, as we saw earlier, the Bible in the original. He was going back to the sources, and he realized something. You can't buy your way to forgiveness. It's of grace. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. Uh, a pope can't dispense it. This whole system is completely outside of the Word of God. And he had a pastoral concern that people that he loved and cared about were fooled by this Ponzi scheme and would give their wealth to a corrupt church that would give them nothing in return and take from them everything. And he said something has to be done. And that's why he wrote the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses address this whole issue of the, the sell of indulgences. And that's what happened on October 31st, 1517. You know, he nailed that on the door. And that's what sparked the Reformation as people then begin to say, okay, what is our church doing? And is this really serving salvation? You with me still? All right. That's the third list. Fourth and finally. Fourth list, all right? There were three men who were what, what are called forerunners of the Reformation. I want to give these to you in closing. The, there, it's not like Luther came out of nowhere. He didn't appear in a vacuum. There had been, throughout the history of the church, movements within the church to try to reform it, and people who were eventually pushed out of the church that wanted to reform it. And in many ways, Luther and Zwingli and all those guys, and we stand on the shoulders, like I said, of people who went before. And let me give you three names. First, Peter Waldo. And his dates are 1140 to 1205. He was a Frenchman and he commissioned preachers. They were called uh, paupers because they were mostly poor people. Later, they were called the Waldensians after, after Waldo. But he trained preachers, and he sent them out following Christ's example by twos uh, to preach and to call people to repentance and to call the church to repentance. And they criticized the corruption of the church and called it to reform. And of course, the Pope didn't like this. Uh, the Pope in 1184 denounced Waldo and his preachers as heretics. And Waldo said, you know what? Here's the issue. You, Pope, aren't the extreme ultimate authority. The Bible is the ultimate authority. <laughs> and 
for that, they started hunting them down. This is such a cool story. They started hunting down the Waldensians to kill them. And guess where they went? They pulled a sound of music and they ran to the mountains. They went up to the Alps and they lived and raised their families in the mountains. And when the Reformation happened 300 years later, they came out of the mountains and joined the Reformation. But they said, we would rather live in the mountains away from society and have our Bible and function according to the authority of the Bible than to live down here under the authority of a false church. Second person you need to know is a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. His dates are 1330 to 1384. So he lived 100 years after Waldo. And Wycliffe was a brilliant philosopher and scholar at the University of Oxford. I went to Oxford last summer, and, and it was just, oof. It, it, was, it was electric thinking about being where Wycliffe stood, where Wycliffe lived, where Wycliffe studied. And Wycliffe was a Bible guy. And he wrote several books basically critiquing, critiquing the Pope, critiquing the church at the time. And he said the same thing as Peter Waldo. He said that the supreme authority that we must return to is the Word of God. And anything not found in the Word of God must be rejected. So clerical celibacy, monasticism, these monastic vows, the intercession of the saints, this idea that Mary or John or Peter or these other people can intercede for you, the veneration of images and relics, this idea of pilgrimages that you could go to Rome or, or Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, the idea of transubstantiation in the mass, the idea of papal authority, all of that is not found in the Bible and therefore must be rejected. He said, moreover, that yes, God grants authority to spiritual leaders, but if those spiritual leaders are morally disqualified, then they no longer are able to hold the office in which they've been placed. So he looks out on the whole gauntlet of all these priests living licentiously, and he says, look, the issue is that they just need to be removed because they're disqualified. Wycliffe was excommunicated in 1317 and died uh, a few years later of natural causes. And as you can imagine, his followers were greatly persecuted in England. Um, and they essentially did the same thing as the Waldensians. They went, of course, they didn't have mountains to run to. They went underground for 130 years. And they too came out 130 years later when the Reformation happened. Third reformer, forerunner to the Reformation, and perhaps the most famous of them all, a man who deserves our highest respect, highest regard. His name is Jan Hus, or John Hus in English. Uh, his dates, 1370, 1415. He was also a professor like Wycliffe at the university in Bohemia, Germany, and he became a disciple of Wycliffe. He started reading what Wycliffe wrote, and he said what Wycliffe said is right. So his message was very similar to Wycliffe. Again, it's that the Bible is the ultimate authority and that the church needed to be reformed in accords with the Bible. He called for sinful clergy to be removed. And really, he starts to bring about reforms, and the populace in Bohemia is right there with them. And so, really, there was a pre-Reformation in Germany where people begin to see what, what Huss was talking about, and the reform began to happen. Now, obviously, this didn't sit well with the Roman authorities, with the Pope and everything else. And, and actually, at the time, 
there were three popes. That's a problem, isn't it? If, if your whole system hinges on papal authority and you have three popes, what do you do? And, and how this happened is a, is a tale of tales. But they said, we need to rule so that we understand who actually is in charge. So they held an ecumenical council called the Council of, of Constance to figure out this whole pope thing. And at that council, they also said, we need to deal with this guy, Jan Hus, who's been uh, preaching and, and, and calling the church to reform up in Bohemia. And so they sent for Hus, and they said, we will grant you safe passage. In other words, you will not be harmed. We promise that you will not be harmed, uh, but we want to, to go over what you're teaching. And so they called Hus to come to the Council of Constance, and Hus went because he thought that he would be able to defend his views and perhaps bring reform to the church. And so he gets to the Council of Constance, and they don't even give him an opportunity to speak. They say, you are a heretic. And oh, by the way, because you're a heretic, you don't have any rights. So we told you that you'd be given safe passage, but you don't have safe passage because you're a heretic. And they condemned him to death, to be burned at the stake alive. Before they burned him alive, they gave him a dunce hat. And the dunce hat had pictures of demons on the hat. And he said, this is nothing compared to the crown of thorns that my Savior wore. And they marched him to the stake, and they burned him alive. Us. And before he died, let me give you famous quote from Hus. Hus in, in the Czech language means goose. <laughs> he says, you are now going to burn a goose, but in a century you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil, end quote. And many think that was a, a prophecy that was fulfilled in Luther, that Hus was the goose, Luther the swan. And what's interesting, this is what we're going to talk about in two weeks. In two weeks, we're going to talk about sola scriptura and the understanding of Scripture as the Word of God in the final and ultimate authority. Well, Luther was in a debate. And Luther, in the debate, they begin arguing. And when you're arguing with somebody in a debate, you have to cite authority, right? By, by what authority are you arguing for what you're arguing? And Luther kept quoting Scripture. And the cardinal that he was debating with started quoting church councils. And Luther in the debate said, my scripture is higher than your church council. And the cardinal said, you know who you sound like? You sound like Jan Hus. That's who you sound like. And Luther said, well, maybe I am a Hussite. Maybe I am Jan Hus. And so he is. So he was. Maybe we're Jan Hus. Are you a Bible person? That we are. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would take this spirit of, of what happened 500 years ago and the truth that was recovered and that this truth would become the anchor of our souls, that we would become God-centered Christians, Christians whose heart beats for the glory and honor of God, Christians who desire to know God, and Christians who desire to treasure the Word of God and read and study the Word of God and submit our lives to the Word of God, and Christians who understand the work of Christ as being finished for us, that His blood is all that is needed for salvation, and it was completed once and for all, and that there is no need for a single ounce of our works. In fact, if we try to contribute an ounce of our works, then we have not yet truly trusted in the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for these precious truths, these precious doctrines. 
May we believe them and may we live them. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.